to either category, but what we do know is that this letter is written uh, to recent converts to Christianity, those who have heard the good news of Jesus and who have grown up in a Jewish context but have left that context in order to follow Jesus. And this letter is written specifically, and you've heard it if you've been here, uh, as a basically to, to lift Jesus up and to show that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior, but also as a warning to go, do not leave him. Do not turn away from him. And you may feel that, you know, I'm a long way removed from first century Judaism and those first converts to Christianity, but every day this week you have wrestled with some of those same questions. And so have I. Is this worth it? Where do I put my hope? Where do I put my trust? Am I listening to Jesus and, and to what he actually is telling me? Or am I listening to something else? And so over and over again in Hebrews, it's going to point us back to Jesus. Um, It's going to gently and sometimes not so gently warn us about what it means to walk away from him, to turn away from him. And so this morning, we're in Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at not all of that chapter this morning. Um, We're going to leave some of that chapter and and the next chapter for, for next week. But as you're turning there in your Bibles or watching on the screen or looking at your phone... Um, this week, as I was thinking about this passage, I kept thinking about this movie. And I thought, um, oh, this movie will be a good illustration because it's not that old and most people have probably seen it. And then I looked up when it came out and it came out in 2000. So it's 23 years old. Uh, It's called Castaway. Um, Some of you all probably seen Castaway. Um, It starred Tom Hanks. Um, You've heard of Tom Hanks, and uh, Tom Hanks uh, plays Chuck Nolan. Chuck Nolan was a systems analyst for Federal Express, FedEx. And so he's somebody who is just meticulous about time, that he is, his life is ruled by the second hand, that what he wants is to get better and better and better at manipulating and controlling time so that the packages get to where they need to go in the proper place. And as he obsesses over time, what you start to see in this movie is that he is actually robbed of enjoying time. So much so that there is a woman that he's involved with and he is in love with and he wants to marry, but uh, there's a lot of tension there um, because he can't seem to give the time to this relationship that he needs to give. And sort of the pivotal part of the movie is that on one of his many trips around the world, his plane is, is blown off course and it ends up crashing in the middle of the ocean and he is the only survivor and he escapes on a life raft and he literally lives for four years on a deserted island. And so you watch him struggling to survive and you, you, you know, all of these kind of emotions run through your, your head as you're watching something like this unfold because you're thinking, man, what would it be like to have to, you know, struggle to, could I, could I do this? Do I know how to make a fire? And could I actually like... Um, find food in order to, to survive. And there's all of those kind of questions, the questions of like, what would it look like to, to have be totally cut off from your loved ones? And they probably think that, that you're dead. But the most surprising 
thing that ran through my head when I watched this movie, and as I talked to other ones afterwards, and I even read reviews that mentioned the same thing, one of the most surprising things as you watch this man on a deserted island was what ran through my heart was a little bit of ping of jealousy. What would it look like for all of the noise to finally stop? What would it look like for the appointments? What would it look like for, for, the, for the neediness of all of, this, all of the things that, that you're juggling right now? What would it look like finally for it to stop? And here's the thing, if you find yourself jealous of a plane crash survivor who is banished to live alone on a deserted island, it may be time to reevaluate some things in your life, right? And this morning, in the passage that I'm about to read to you, as complicated as it is in some ways to follow, and as I start to read it, you'll see what I mean, what this passage is talking about and what this passage is actively inviting you this morning into is true, deep, eternal rest. It is the rest that you can't buy. It is rest that you can't manipulate. It's rest that you can't schedule. It is rest that only God can give. And so let's look at that this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them, but the message they heard, he's referring back to the Israelites, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we, have believed, for we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask his blessing upon it. Father, we 
come to you this morning, we've already prayed that to you all hearts are open and all desires are known, that you see all things, that you know all things. And in many ways, that's a terrifying thought. And yet you're the one who also sent your son into this world to seek and to save those who were most lost. And so, Father, I pray that you would open up our ears and our eyes and our hearts this morning so that we might hear, that we might see, that we might believe, and so that we might trust in you. And in doing so, that we might enter that rest even now that is offered to us. We long for it, Lord. Thank you for inviting us to it this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This morning, I want to look at, at three things in this passage. I want to look at the need for rest, and then I want to think about the freedom of rest that we see in this passage, and I want to think lastly of, of receiving this rest. How do we, the reception of this rest, how do we receive it? I don't think um, any of us would argue with the fact that we need rest. I remember a few years ago, uh, the comedian, I'm not sure if he does anything anymore, but he, he kind of had a moment there for a while named Brian Regan. And, you know, his tip, a lot of his uh, comedy revolved around food. And um, one little bit that he had was about Pop-Tarts. There's a lot of, co- there's a lot of um, comedic fodder around Pop-Tarts. And so um, you may not have known this. And one of the things about Pop-Tarts that he talks about is that you look at the box, and the box has instructions on it. And you think, like, it's a Pop-Tart. Right? You put it in the toaster. Why do I need instructions? But his bit is really about the fact that there's two sets of instructions on the Pop-Tart box. And I haven't looked at one to verify this. But the first one is to toast the Pop-Tart, which is what it's intended to do, which takes about a minute and a half. But the second instructions are for those who don't have time to toast their Pop-Tart. It's the microwave option, and it's three seconds. And this is what he says about this. He says, listen, if you need to zap fry your Pop-Tarts before you head out the door, you might want to loosen up your schedule, right? (laughs) You don't have time to toast your Pop-Tarts. There's something wrong in your life. And I don't think any of you would argue with the statement that our culture, the culture that we exist in, and maybe this has been true for all of humanity, but I can't speak for all of humanity, but I can speak to my own life and I can speak to what I see in the lives of those around me, is that we are a culture that is restless. We are restless. And it's not just that, that true, deep rest like seems like a mirage, it seems like a, it's elusive, it's that we sometimes can't even conceive of what actual rest looks like. What would that even look like? Now, I do think that this has been talked about a lot in the last few years. And I think whether it's sociologists or whether it's pastors, um, that we've talked about our restlessness. And I do think that younger generations have paid attention to that and are talking about it more and even addressing it more. And what has normally um, come of that is that younger generations are really, have become really, really good at self-care. Um, that we talk a lot about self-care, that we prioritize ourselves, that we secure our own max, uh, oxygen mask before we secure the mask of others, that we protect our time, that we put barriers around our space. But I don't think it's actually addressed the problem of our restlessness. 
And in fact, I think that in many ways, um, our concentration on self-care has just made us, in many ways, for many of us, self-absorbed and gazing at ourselves to such a degree that we are actually more exhausted at the end of the day. Am I doing self-care right? Am I taking care of myself well enough? Why, do I feel rested enough? Why are we so tired? So often when you ask someone how they're doing, they either explicitly tell you, first thing, how exhausted they are, or they allude to a schedule that is so stacked that their allusion to it is meant to elicit in you feelings of sympathy because you think they must be so tired because their schedule is so full that we exist in a culture that so values productivity that your level of exhaustion is almost worn as a badge of honor. Because it shows you, it shows the people around you how valuable and how worthy you must be if your schedule and your calendar is actually that full. And that's true whether you're a lawyer or whether you're a homemaker. And maybe that's, maybe that's exactly the problem. Maybe our restlessness is not so much from having a full and demanding schedule as it is from the belief that a demanding and full schedule will give our lives value. Maybe that thought is the thought that actually exhausts us. Because if our entire existence is given worth and value because of what we do or what you accomplish, then you will never enter rest. How much is enough to give your life value? How hard do you have to work in order to be worthy? And if you add to that the perpetual um, inner critic that tends to speak to us in our hearts and our brains that says, you know what, you haven't done enough, you need to do better, you need to do more, you need to be smarter, you need to be more educated, you need to work harder in your job, you need to make more money, you need to be thinner, have you exercised today, you need to be this or this or this or this. If we add to it that perpetual inner critic, it's no wonder that we struggle so much with rest. Because often it's that inner critic that we're listening to maybe more than anything else. And here's the thing, if we haven't properly diagnosed the source of our restlessness, then we become even more restless cycling through the long list of faulty solutions that are being offered to us all the time. You need to practice mindfulness. You need to add you know, gardening onto your list of things to do. You need to practice all of these things to such a degree that you might actually find rest. But here's the thing, no amount of vacations, no amount of naps, no amounts of evaluation of our sleep schedule is actually going to address the problem of our restlessness because it's much deeper than that. And so what is true rest? What is this passage talking about? What is the freedom that this passage is actually offering to us? What does that look like? What is that? What is true rest? This passage, as I said, it's weird and it's hard to follow. Do you all agree with that? You can nod if you think so. You were like, what? It's jumping all over the place. What is he talking about when he talks about rest? Because the term is used eight times in this passage. And it uses it in various ways, different ways. It's not always the same 
when he's talking about rest, but there is a common denominator. As I thought about this passage more and more, the common denominator as he talks about rest in this passage is freedom. That rest, that true rest, is the result of being truly free. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's step back and let's take a look and let's think about what he's saying in this passage because he's picking up on an argument that we started last week. And so Hebrews is, because the arguments can get kind of nuanced and complex, um, if, you, if you miss a week, they are recorded, they're on a podcast, you go back and listen um, because he's, he's conti- he says, therefore, at the beginning of this passage. So he's continuing a thought from last week. And we looked at That thought was that he was encouraging us to take a close look at our hearts because even those who were delivered out of slavery by God, out of Egypt, walked on dry ground, the sea is parted, all of this, plagues were sent. Even those who saw those miracles ended up wandering in the wilderness. And as they wandered in the wilderness, their hearts became hardened against God and therefore they did not enter God's rest. And that's what he's talking about, and that's what he's alluding to at the beginning um, of this chapter. And he says in verse 2, he tells us why they didn't enter his rest. And here's why. They heard the good news, but it didn't benefit them because they were not unified by faith with those who listened. And you may go, that doesn't make any sense. I don't know what that sentence means, right? They heard it. They heard They heard the good news that God was giving to them. Now, they didn't hear the good news in the same way we hear the good news. They wouldn't have even been able to conceive of that good news. But he says, just just like you have heard good news, they also heard good news. What did they hear good news about? Freedom. God was bringing them to a place of rest, and God was delivering them out of slavery in order to give them the rest that only he can give in order to set them free. But they were not united by faith with those who listened. Listen to what the NIV, how it translates it. It's a little clear. They did not share the faith with those who obeyed. So there were some who heard this good news. They believed in God. I mean, they saw that God did things. But what is the problem is that they didn't trust in him and they didn't obey him. So what is he saying? There's some Israelites, they heard this good news of deliverance, rest in the promised land, they didn't trust him. They didn't trust that the one who actually parted the sea was actually going to bring them to a place that was restful. Why? Because they were experiencing hardships, they were experiencing difficulty, they were experiencing hunger, they were getting tired of this bread that was falling out of the the sky. As miraculous as it was, tired of it. They wanted to be back in slavery. And essentially, what they did is they rejected God's word. And what we, I mean, what we have to take away from that is that there is a difference between simple belief and trust. And what do I mean by that? Well, both are aspects of faith, but true saving faith has to consist of both of those things. Because to simply believe in God, to believe, you know, you ask a lot of people, do you believe in God? Yep, I believe in God. What they mean by that is I believe that there is a God that does exist. I can't know him, access him. I don't know what he's like. But yeah, I believe believe in God. And that is utterly worthless. And scripture itself tells us that, that even the demons believe in God. And they shudder. 
And so to simply believe and to not trust, you could argue that you really don't actually believe in the God as he reveals himself because you're not really seeing him as he is. In other words, you don't really actually believe in him. You believe in your own misguided interpretation of him. And so God was setting them free because he wanted to give them true rest, but they didn't trust that that's what he was going to do. It's, isn't it fascinating that God, actually, he, he, after he delivers them out of slavery, he's like, he tells them, I'm the God who did that. I delivered you, and so I'm going to give you these commandments, and these commandments are for your good. These commandments are a guide for you so that, that you don't go back into a place of unrest. They're not there so that you can prove your love to me. These are there for your protection. And one of those commandments that he gives them, the fourth one, is a commandment to rest. And on that day, they are to set aside all their work, and he takes that very seriously, so that they may not, not not so that they're proving themselves to him, but so that they can remember and they can rest in who he is and what he's done. That he gives them a Sabbath rest. I love the way that um, one writer, Mark Buchanan, puts this. It's at the beginning of your bulletin. You don't turn there now, but just listen. And go back and think about it because he says this, in some ways the whole point of the Exodus, the whole point of it was Sabbath. Let my people go became God's rallying cry that they may worship me. At the heart of liberty, of being let go, is worship. Let my people go that they may worship me, but at the heart of worship is rest. A stopping from all work and all worry and all scheming and all fleeing to stand amazed and thankful before God and his work. There can be no real worship without true rest. Secondly, he talks not just about the Israelites, but as he begins to talk about the Israelites, he begins to tell you what this rest is about and what it's based on. And you know that over and over again, Um, that you hear it in this passage, that the rest he's referring to is referred to as God's rest. My rest. They shall not enter my rest. God's rest. Why? Because the type of rest that our hearts are actually restless for is a participation in God's rest. Okay, that's weird, so let me say it again. The type of rest that right now that you may feel, oh, now, do you need to reschedule some things in your life? Sure. I'm talking about a deep unrest that so many of us experience during just a normal week. And what our hearts are restless for is actually a participation in God's rest. And this is what he's inviting us into. God created, remember, he says, and somewhere he says, on the seventh day, and it's not, he doesn't, he knows that's at the beginning of Genesis. I don't know why it says in somewhere. But God created, and it was good. And God created, and it was good. And God created, and it was good. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And you're like, God rested. Why did God need to rest? God doesn't really need rest, does he? And that, but that rest for God is a saying that I have completed what I've done, and that rest for him is perpetual, that he is still engaged in that rest, even as he continues to do his work, right? He hasn't created and rested and stepped out of the picture that God is continually at rest, even as he is at work. And that may sound weird, but think about Adam and Eve in the garden, 
There was no sin in the world yet. And yet, what was there? They had full access to the presence of God. They, they were naked and they were unashamed. And they were what? They were working. So work existed before the fall. And yet, at the same time, they were working in a way that was restful, that was stripped away from them when they were driven out of the garden. And you remember, God says that as they sinned against him, that there was enmity between them and that he even had to curse the ground and that they, their toil, their work became toilsome where before it wasn't, it was restful. In other words, in, work is not the enemy of rest. There, there's a sense in which you can be at rest even while you're at work because this is the state that God is always in. And this is the type of rest that he's inviting us into. And that's hard. I think that's hard for us to conceive of because that means in our life, the rest that he's offering is a restfulness that is not given simply by going on vacation. It's not given simply by putting your work down. It's a rest that is perpetual and that continues even when your life might look crazy. Um, there's a artists and athletes and all sorts of people talk about a state when they're kind of at the highest point of their craft that they kind of can enter into. And it's kind of, you know, it's got like Buddhist origins to it, but flow state. You heard the term like you're in a flow state. And what people mean by that when they talk about it is that, you know, you think of a person running hundred, you know, a hundred miles and they enter into this point. You're like, your body is obviously tired and your body is obviously exhausted. But sometimes you enter into this state that's like a flow state that it doesn't feel hard. In fact, it feels joyful and that it almost feels restful. And if you, if you can conceive of that, you can conceive of the state that God exists in. That he is always at peace. He is at rest, even as he's working. And this is what he's inviting us into. And so thirdly, what he says, this freedom of rest, is that we, this amazing statement in verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. We who have believed enter that rest. That the true promise of rest remains for who? It remains for those who believe and trust in God's provision for deliverance and freedom. Where do we see most clearly God's provision for deliverance and freedom? The Israelites couldn't conceive of it, but we have seen it clearly. It is through Jesus. And I'll circle back to that in a minute, but what does he mean? There, there is no rest for our soul apart from God because the rest he is talking about is a rest that exists in her hearts. See, this is still continuing off of last week where we talked so much about be careful. Don't turn away from the true source of rest. Don't harden your heart, but strive to continually to enter into that rest. You can enter that rest right now. This rest is accessible even in the midst of an insane schedule. That sounds pretty good. How do we receive it? I'll end with this. How do we receive this rest? In verse 11, he says it this way, that we strive to enter this rest, that we should strive. This is a command to us this morning. You should strive to enter this rest 
And he's already said now, well, you just said if we believed, we've already entered that rest. Okay, he's saying both of these things side by side. We who believe have entered that rest, strive to enter that rest. Strive to enter that rest, meaning this is perpetual, this is daily. Why? Well, he says, so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. Now, to us, striving to enter rest sounds like an oxymoron, right? I shouldn't have to strive to enter rest. It should just come naturally. No, what he's saying is that you exist in a world that is fallen, and for you to access and enter that rest on a daily basis is something that you have to continually be alert toward and you have to strive for. That it doesn't just like fall on you and you wake up one day and I'm like perfect peace all the time. I've never had to think about it again. He's saying, no, you have to completely do battle in order to remain in that rest. It is a free gift to you and yet you strive to keep it forefront in your life. And what does he mean so that nobody may fall to some sort of disobedience? We, the term disobedience throws us because what we think that the author is reverting to now is saying to you, if you're a good boy and you're a good girl, then you can have rest. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying what, we've already defined what he's talking about when he talks about disobedience, that we've already established this, that it is a refusal to actually believe and trust in God's word. Now, of course, is that going to lead to actions that um, are against God? Of course. But at the heart of it, the heart, the heart, 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 he's saying at the heart of it is a disbelief in God and what God says. This is what Israel was continually doing. They were not, as they wandered in the wilderness, they were disbelieving that God is who he says he was and what he was going to do. And he's warning us, don't fall into that same disobedience. Trust in his word, which results in a heart. You know, if you distrust, it results in a heart that is hard toward him and that will not enter his rest. So the striving here is really a persistence and an endurance in believing and trusting in God's word, even when it seems hopeless. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe you've experienced times in your life where it just feels hopeless and you think there has got to be a different, better way than Jesus. Because I don't like the way Jesus is loving me right now. It doesn't feel like love. It feels, it feels wrong. It feels like punishment. And yet what Jesus has said is that he has taken all the punishment for our sins who believe in him upon himself. And so you go, well, what is, okay, don't, Strive to enter this rest so we don't fall to the same disobedience, which is really disbelieving his word, a refusal to take God for who he says he is. And then in verse 12, you, these, these verses may have st- struck you because they're usually ripped out of context, context, and you may have thought, I didn't realize that's where those verses were found. What are the verses I'm referring to? He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and interactions of the heart. And you're like, what in the world does that have to do with what he's talking about? And I think it has everything to do with what he's talking about. Because what is he saying? He's saying that the word, the word of God is like a sword And that it pierces, it cuts where? Into the heart. And it exposes 
And when you are exposed to the word, the word exposes you that no creature, he says, is hidden, that it leaves all of us naked before God. And it's when we're naked before God that we're actually beginning to be ready to receive his rest. Go back to Adam and Eve for a minute in the garden. They, they sinned and they saw that they were naked, right? And they hid. For the first time, sin entered into this perfect creation and they, all of a sudden they realized the state that they were in and they ran and they hid from God. And God, what does he, how does he respond? God kills an animal and takes its skin. This is just a fascinating, I mean, it's like a verse that's so easy to pass over. God makes clothes for them. And he clothes them. But their disobedience, their disbelief, their in, the enmity that now exists between them and God means that they have to leave the garden. In other words, they have to leave God's presence because these sinful creatures cannot exist in the presence of God. They can't remain in his rest. And that garden is a picture of rest. They walked with him in the cool of the, the, the day. There was no shame. There was no guilt. It was hearts that were at rest. Now they're driven out of the garden and their hearts are restless. How do they re-enter that rest? And you remember what God did as he placed an angel at the gate of that garden who had a sword. And the sword moves in every direction as if to say, if anyone tries to get back into this garden, you're going to get cut. You're not going to survive it. That the only way to re-enter this garden is, is death. How do we get back in? How do we find rest? The very word of God. The very word that was disbelieved over and over and over again became flesh. And that word came and dwelt among us. In that word, he perfectly listened and trusted and obeyed the Father on our behalf. And then he was cut. He was pierced for our transgressions. As he did the work of bringing us back through that gate and into the Father's presence, into the presence of his rest, only Jesus can bring us there. And that when we strive, we strive to fix our eyes on him. Because he is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he is the only place where rest is found. And it is there on the cross as he is pierced for our transgressions that Jesus cries out, It is finished. The work is done. And here's the thing, friends. If the voice in your head that says you need to prove yourself, the, the voice in your head that says that you are guilty, those are true voices, right? Because we are guilty, and we are going to stand before a living God someday. And that voice never rests, and therefore you can't rest until that voice is silenced. And it can only be silenced by the one who hung upon a cross and said, it's finished. I've done it for you. So that when these followers of God 
Jewish followers come to Jesus and ask him, what must we be doing in John chapter 6 so that we are doing the works of God? What does Jesus say? This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. You believe in me and keep believing in me and fix your eyes on me because I am the one who brings you before the throne of grace that we're going to look at next week. I am the only one who can give you rest. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And you can enter that now. This is why Jesus is the only one who could stand upon the earth and say to us this morning, come to me, all you who, are la- who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest now, right now. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is an invitation to all of us now, right now. The promise of entering his rest, he says, it still stands and it is offered to you in this very moment. And the only path to that rest, the only path is Jesus, who pronounces this morning on our behalf, it is finished, so that we might come with boldness into the presence of the living God, Let me pray. Heavenly Father, belief and trust, fixing our eyes on you, it's hard work, but it doesn't merit your love. Your love is free. Your grace, by definition, is not something that we can earn. It is given. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us not to turn away from that grace because we are addicted to doing And we are addicted to looking at the work of our hands and we even want to manage and produce our own rest. And it is making us restless. Help us today to rest in your son Jesus to whom we are united by faith. And Father, those this morning who are restless and don't know him, would you drag them to yourself and that you would make them lie down and green pastures, and would you restore their souls? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.